Welcome to the BristolCon Fringe, a series of readings from the science fiction and fantasy community. This podcast was recorded in front of a live audience in the centre of Bristol. So, time to ask our readers some interesting questions, and thankfully both of them gave themselves really interesting introductions. So, I'm going to start with with Chloe, because you said you spent last weekend at a tournament. Presumably this means hitting people with big swords. Uh, Yeah, so on Saturday I competed in um, the Wessex League Bristol chapter. Wessex League is a new string of HEMA tournaments for this year. Uh, It was only my second ever tournament, so I was really, really nervous. But it was a really fun day. I got roped into competing in women's longsword by Fran Termanello, despite the fact that I haven't trained in longsword in about a year. Um, and so my my strategy was basically to like stand there and let them hit me <laughs> to get it over with as quickly as possible. I put up a rudimentary defense and I tried to hit them back a little bit, but it didn't really work. Uh, my, my plan was to kind of save myself for women's saber in the afternoon and I did well in that which was really nice but yeah Hema's he awesome any of you want to try hitting people with swords I thoroughly <laughs> recommend it you will you will hurt in ways you didn't know you could hurt <laughs> but it is it's absolutely it's absolutely worth it it's um it's also a money pit <laughs> So be be prepared for that, because once you start, you see the swords, and you want the swords, and you buy the swords. <laughs> then you need better protective gear, then you need better swords, then you need better protective gear, and better swords, and, and on it goes. But yeah, it's, it's, it's brilliant, and I love it. And um, since I'm here with a microphone right now, I'm just going to say all the women I competed against were such worthy compon- uh, opponents, just in case they, li- they listen to the podcast. <laughs> Um, they they were really great, and it, and it was an honour to be there competing against them. How did you place? How did you do? Uh, so I came fifth out of six in women in women's longsword, but I was pretty I was pretty pleased with that. I beat one person. <laughs> I, I was a bit it was a bit cheeky. I just kind of sniped at her hand to score cheeky points. That wasn't very sporting of me, but it is, it is allowed. Um, in women's sabre, I got silver. So I, yeah. <laughs> Oh, th- thanks very much. Yeah, it was. Um, I had some really, really excellent fights against some really good fencers. Particularly, Fran Terminello is just awesome, and um, Maria Mar- Makarova. I'm not sure how you pronounce her surname, but she's a decorated champion. And yeah, well, that's one of the hardest fights I think I've ever had. And it was. Uh, yeah, it was great. It was a brilliant day all round. Uh, some of you, of course, will have seen Fran in action when we did that Fight Like a Girl book launch. And frankly, anybody who's prepared to put themselves in the way of getting beaten up by Fran has my <laughs> utmost respect. <laughs> she's, she's, she's awesome. Okay, so moving on to Anna, you talked about your father doing poetry and, and maybe that having some influence. I think, yeah, there, there was definitely a question of, of the rhythm of the words and repetition and stuff. So is, is that important to your writing? Yes, hugely. I mean, I I consider myself someone who writes prose rather than story, I guess. The prose is the kind of thing I think about all the time. The kind of... I go over stuff a lot. But, yeah, no, pro, the, the rhythm, the structure, and actually the repetition is hugely important to me. I'm hugely influenced by epic poetry. I studied the Iliad... I was the incredible. I've had the incredible privilege of hearing someone, my classics teacher, sing the first couple of lines of the Iliad to me in the original Greek while there was a thunderstorm going on outside, which is absolutely amazing. I've had, I've heard people sing Old English to me, um, some bits of Gawain. I've sort of, I've read Beowulf a lot. I've read the kind of Gilgamesh, all kind of. Ancient, so the and the way that those poems, particularly the very old poems, which were which were created in oral society, they are they have a lot of repetition, they have a very strong rhythm, and those have hugely hugely influenced me and kind of poetry as well. Again, modernist poetry, the waste. Another amazing experience hearing Fiona Shaw perform the Wasteland in a ruined theatre in Docklands, just in the shadow of Canary Wharf. And just hearing the way she just spoke the wasteland and the cadences and the rhythm 
kind of weird the rhythms and the jaggedness of the rhythm that there's a really really kind of profound moments in my life that have really shaped the way I write I go over things a lot I I probably it probably is written to be read aloud in some ways I, I love writing it and I do read it aloud a lot and yeah the, the rhythm and how I structure individual sentences and even how I place commas is hugely hugely important to me uh, and this classics degree that you've got, was it, it um, literature from the classics or you know, Greek history, Roman history? It was a, it was both. It was called ancient. It was, degree was called ancient world studies, so it was um, ancient history and classics. I'm dyslexic. My ability to study Greek and Latin was actually pretty appalling. I had the <laughs> one of the great, single greatest passages of the Iliad for me, where um, Achilles appears in his splendour in his new armour to avenge the death of Protoclus and he's like the sun and he's shining. I had to I had to slave over attempting to translate that bloody passage, which is one of the <laughs> reading his trans translation is one of the most kind of astonishing things. I, I could never I could read that passage forever. But translating the damn thing was just <laughs> sheer pain. But yeah, no I so I studied um mostly in mostly literature and translation, some literature in the original and class and classical has history. My um my special subject at university and my third year was Alexander the Great, so I spent a whole year studying Alexander the Great, which was absolutely awesome as well. Well, fabulous. I think it's Bisexual Visibility Week this week, so we can talk about Alexander the Great, which is, is a good thing. <laughs> yes, dear old Alexander, shag everything that moved. Um, <laughs> people he just shagged a wide variety of different sexes <laughs> several men several women and at least one eunuch <laughs> yes. exactly yes so thoroughly pansexual was our alexander good so i mean we've, we've already got the explicit tag so well we might as well milk it for all it's worth um just uh, coming back to to chloe you you're expertise and as you said in the the heritage industry have you got a particular building you look after Oh, well, I currently work at Tinsfield, uh, which is the Victorian Gothic mansion just outside of Bristol. It's really nice. If you haven't been there, come visit. I will try to sell you National Trust membership as you come through the ticket office. That is currently my job. I did used to work on the house team, though. I was a conservation assistant for about a year, so I spent a lot of time cleaning and hoovering. Um, but cleaning historic dirt, so a very worthy, very worthy pastime. <laughs> But I've now moved over to um, to the visitor services team instead, which is, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Get to meet a lot of really interesting people. I do believe uh, Juliet McKenna visited your, your property a, a short while back and, and wrote to me an enthusing about what a wonderful place it was. So um, could well be. I'm sure it was, was a, a National Trust property somewhere near Bristol. Cool. Okay. Um, I will get on to the, the, the readings shortly, folks. But uh, um, I... I have this dreadful shoe envy. Um, Anna really does have the, the best shoes of, of anybody. I the trouble is, of course, I'd fall off them because I'm completely clumsy. Um, but the, the, the question that occurs to me is, what do you feed them and how much does it cost? Oh, these are my dragon shoes. I did actually buy them. They, um, I bought these the first time I wore them was the book launch party in London. And they, they are my dragon shoes. They are... Um, they they don't quite talk what my ancient etheric my ancient language that the dragons and the the god kings spoke but they are they 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 nearly do they're my yeah, my special dragon shoes I've actually my um my hardback copy that I usually read from but I've gone over to reading from the paperback now because it's lighter and easier to carry around but my hardback copy that I read from has actually got loads of dents in the cover from travelling around in my suitcase. <laughs> Okay, so Chloe, you're you're working on this novel. Is it like ready to send off to agents and stuff yet? If anybody's listening to the podcast and is inspired, <laughs> yes. If any agents are listening and you're interested, please get in touch. <laughs> um, no, so I I chose to work part time this year so I can finish the manuscript. So my aim is to finish it by the end of this year. Hopefully, I'm pretty much on track. Um, once that's done, I'm going to see see about getting it published, see if I can swing something. Um, I've got more books planned as well, because you, you know how people love a series. <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, I, w I would absolutely love to get it published. I, I actually had the idea for this book when I was about 11 years old, and I'm 26 now, so it's high time. <laughs> um, some other people read it, it would be quite nice. And is there any other writing of yours that people might be able to find? Well, yes, there is. <laughs> that, that question wasn't planned at all. <laughs> yeah, um, if, you, if you go to Holdfast Magazine, uh, the website, I believe, is www.holdfastmagazine.com. It's a really lovely online sci-fi and fantasy magazine. And last September, they were kind enough to publish um, a short story I wrote called The Day of Destiny. Um, it's quite different to my, my novel. Um, they wanted fiction themed around Brexit um, <laughs> after the result of the EU referendum came out. And I thought, I thought, oh, I don't, I don't really know if that's my kind of thing when, when I saw the call out for submissions. But then I'm a massive King Arthur nerd. And obviously he's uh, destined to come again at Britain's greatest hour of need. And being a Remainer, I kind of felt like that time had come. So I, I wrote a story in which uh, King Arthur reawakens from his, you know, centuries of slumber under a tour in Somerset. And, uh, you know, what, what evil afflicts my land? What have I come back to face? And he, he goes down into this village and they're like, oh, oh, it's Brexit. <laughs> Then obviously uh, one, one particular character called Mrs. Jenkins, who's a little old lady, has the joy of trying to explain to King Arthur, this uh, <laughs> sort of fifth century king, what Brexit is. And he's, uh, he freaks out, <laughs> basically. So yeah, if you'd like to read that, please, please do go to Hold Fast magazine. I, I would describe it as a, as a tragic comedy. Um, yeah. <laughs> interesting actually because I recently wrote a blog post in which I compared King Arthur to Nigel Farage with the magic sword so there we go because <laughs> all he actually wanted to do was kick some Germans out of Britain he wanted to come and live here <laughs> to be fair Arthur conquered Europe uh, so he's, he's obviously European I think um, by the way if, if you do go to Holdfast magazine it's not obligatory to read my story in, in that Brexit issue <laughs> Okay, um, so Anna, it's uh, Quarter Broken Knives, your first novel? Yes, it is. I mean, actually, just completely gratuitous plug. I did, I've got a short story in Grimdark Magazine, issue 12, called Red Glass, which is vaguely set, which is set in the world of Broker of Broken Knives, the Empire of Dust world, but not particularly related to the Quarter Broken Knives. And I've got a short story coming up in an anthology that Petros at booknest.eu is doing which is um, it's to raise it's an anthology called The Art of War to raise money for Médecins Sans Frontières which I think is just such a beautiful kind of absurd irony that kind of we're all writing about war to raise money for doctors to go into war zones and help people in war zones <laughs> suffering the reality of what we're writing about but yeah that's also set in the Empires of Dust world but yes The Court of Broken Knives is actually Apart from a couple of poems that I had published many years ago on my dad's website, The Court of Broken Knives is the first piece of fiction I've ever had published, which is pretty cool. Okay, so that means I need to put it on the list for the Crawford Award. Thank you. Um, and, yeah, so you've got there. Any advice for Chloe along the way? <sighs> okay, don't rush to get an agent. This is the big big thing I sort of say to people um, I really lucked out actually getting an agent, it was unbelievable how painless I found the getting an agent part of it was but so an agent is a gatekeeper agents get sent hundreds of submissions a week the good ones will just have oh, piles and piles on their desk, it will take people, now I know people it's take, it took five months for their thing to make it from the bottom of their pile to the top of their pile and they, obviously, they have no, they are working under a lot of pressure. They've got time constraints. If something doesn't immediately grab them, they're just not going to look at it because, you know, it's a desk, it's a job like everyone else. We've all got when we've got when you've got an office job and an email comes in which looks a bit pointless, you don't spend ages trying to find out what's actually going on in that and actually is it really important? Really, you just deal with it really quickly and just bin it. And that's how agents work. It is a job. Once you've got an agent, they will fight for you. 
If they see something in your manuscript but think there's a major flaw in it, they will get you to rewrite it. They are going to, once you've got an agent, they are making money out of you, basically. The bottom line is that if you, they don't sell your book, they don't get any money, so they will fight for you. But when they don't know you, when all you are is email number 300 in their massive, long, email, unread emails, they are not going to put loads of effort into working or into looking at it. And a lot of them actually, again, to save time, to stop themselves having that kind of process of someone resubmitting every week, they ha some agencies will have a kind of, if you have submitted this book once, do not resubmit it. I don't care how much your email says that, yeah, okay, it was crap the first time, but hey, I've really rewritten it, it's really good now. You know, this is your, a lot of times this is your one shot. So really work at it. Really do not go too quickly. So many people think, oh, I've written a novel, wow, I was an literary agent immediately. Do not do that. Because that absolutely, you know, that, that is the point at which if you, if no, if all agents reject that, then that's kind of your chance over, basically. So really work at it, really, really work at it, and do what they say. Do exactly what they say in their cover, in their, in go and get the readers. And, it's not as big secret. There's no big secret. Go and get the readers and writers handbook for this year. Go through it and do exactly what they tell you to do in their when they list what they want for a submissions package. Because it's like applying for a job. If you apply for a job, even if you're the best qualified person in the world, if you do not apply for the job in the way that the job is advertised, then people just aren't going to give you space. Because if you were employed, if you had a job description, if you had a jo advert for a job out and you're recruiting someone and 20 people applied for your job and one of them didn't fill in the application form properly, you'd probably just find that as an easy way of binning someone. Not because you're heartless or you're cruel, but because it's your job and you're under pressure. And that so I'm um, getting an agent is part luck, it's part following precisely the rules, and it is the hardest part, and that kind of, yeah. So just do exactly what they tell you and put a huge amount of work into it and really kind of, if you think you're ready, stop and wait and go over it again a couple of times. Alrighty, yes, and do follow the submission guidelines. That, yes. that, um, that's as much for submitting to an anthology as it is for trying to get yourself an agent for a novel. If you don't follow the submission guidelines, bing. Yes. Alrighty, so have we got any questions from the audience? Um, we have the usual reminder that you do need to talk into the microphone, otherwise we won't capture you on the podcast. Does anybody have any questions? Or should I get... Yeah, okay, I'll get back to thinking of some more stuff. So, Chloe... Uh, uh, Justin. Justin, the man who asks questions. Good man. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is a question for Anna. Um, I was talking to a young history student, BA, I think she's doing. She was telling me that they don't teach history anymore. I think she's doing medieval history. You know, that's what, that's what you were talking about. They teach interpretations of history because basically they think they know it all. They know everything that's happened. It's what I assume. This is why they're teaching interpretations. So clearly you, you have a passion yourself for history, for classics, for medieval history. And clearly it comes out in your writing, that passion and, and the passion for language and evoking those times. You know, I mean, you took us to a battle there. You were in that battle, weren't you? Yes. You smelt the blood, because yes. otherwise you can't write about it. So, other than evoking those times, what is the relevance of studying interpretations or even anything to do with classical history, medieval history, today? So, I mean, I guess the really short answer is I would always value knowledge for knowledge's sake. I kind of to know something is always better than not to know it. There is, I just, I guess, I want to know and understand everything about the world. I would always want to know more things about anything, and just that fascination of just knowing, or that just that pure knowledge for knowledge's sake. I am kind of, I came from an academic background, just that absolutely pure, just thinking about things just for the sake and trying to understand them, just for the sake of trying to understand them. But. Um, so all history is a matter of interpretation. Okay, there are really, really basic facts. The Norman Conquest took place in 1066 in our calendar. It's fairly difficult to dispute that. Beyond that, 
the complex, any kind of interpret, any reconstruction of events that goes beyond the really, really, really basic can only ever be cultural interpretation and individual interpretation and will always have intense political meanings behind it. I mean, we're just talking about Brexit. You know, how you interpret something as long ago and as apparently kind of the basic facts of the Norman Conquest, how you interpret someone who is French, is Viking, has a claim to the English throne, is in fact the heir to the English throne, is a barbarian invader, is French and in some way more civilised, because France at this point is more civilised. It's actually, Anglo, the Anglo-Saxon culture is actually far richer, and this person is a bar- Viking barbarian invading. This person has a perfectly legitimate client to the English throne, and it's Harold that's a usurper. You know, all of those positions are true or are, are false at the same time. They are only ever interpretations. I mean, I'm not saying history is false. There are basic facts. I'm not saying, I don't, God, God knows I do not want to come across sounding post-truth. But how we interpret the fact, basic facts of history, is always profoundly ideological. And that, I mean, if you look at the classical world, you know, we're just making jokes about Alexander. If you read Victorian biographies of Alexander, Alexander's sexuality is something that is approached in very, very different ways. If you read Victorian biographies of Alexander, what he's doing, world conquest, is approached in very, very different ways. Alexander in India, obviously, a Victorian interpretation of Alexander conquering India, I should think a lot of kind of our modern take on Alexander as a pansexual megalomaniac psychopath would, of course, a Victorian historian, some difficulties in many areas. You know, it's the, the, the basic facts are there, but, you know, right back from what Arian is writing about Alexander is not his interpretation. So, well, even, you know, there, there's that wonderful Japanese film, which name I can't remember, ran about, you know, the, the famous, the story from all the different perspectives, and it's a totally different story. Beyond the very basic fact, it's all down to ideology, and usually it's the ideology. Usually, it's ideology which has some not particularly pleasant things to say about minorities in inverted commas making up, in fact, probably the clear majority of the world's population. But you know, it's all this interpretation, and it's all just how we interpret. It's always political, and actually, the reading of what the historiography of reading that of unpacking the political interpretation of history is in some ways, I think, more interesting and more chilling than just the kind of, than the study of history itself. If that isn't, if that makes any sense, it's just going on for ages. Uh, but I'm not, say- I'm not saying that there is no such thing as history, I'd like to say. I'm not saying that there is some kind of post-truth, oh, well, if you want to believe the Norman Conquest didn't happen, then that's fine. The Norman Conquest did happen, it happened in 1066. There are very clear things about what it happened, it's just how you interpret it that is totally fluid. Uh, that, that Japanese film that came from the audience was Rashomon? Rashomon. Yeah, okay, which is absolutely brilliant. Uh, and Chloe, interpreting history is your job. Oh. <laughs> well, my job is selling tickets. <laughs> no, I, I think that was, really, uh, that was really interesting what Anna was just saying then. In, in a similar vein, you see the same kind of thing happening with um, the character of King Arthur. Yes, I am going to talk about King Arthur again. <laughs> In, in various um, works of literature, obviously, whether there was a historical Arthur, I'm, I'm not going to go there. There may have been a warrior, but th- there was no King Arthur as such. But you can see how the character, the figure has been appropriated differently depending on people's, the kind of ideological um, sort of propaganda they're trying to put forward. So in the French romances of the Middle Ages, King Arthur is very much a fairy tale king of a fairy tale kingdom, the kingdom of um, Logres, or however you pronounce it. You know, the French uh, romance authors aren't, they're not interested in him as a political figure, but then you get to the 15th century and you've got Sir Thomas Mallory writing the Mort d'Arthur at the time of the Wars of the Roses, and suddenly it's very important that he makes Arthur an English king, king of Britain, who has conquered, you know, the Welsh and the Scots at the same time that, you know, the English kings are trying to assert their sovereignty over all of the British Isles. So, yeah, it's, 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 really, it's really interesting what Anna was saying then, and you can, you can see it in lots of different ways. 
Uh, I'll get back to you in a little while, Justin. I just wanted to add with my historian hat on that even when we have stuff from the past, it's all interpreted. I'm, with Roman history, for example, we have an enormous amount of history written by actual Romans who were alive at the time of the events that, that they're recording. But when you actually look at these people and you read what they wrote, you suddenly realise that you're reading Roman history written down by the contemporary equivalents of Boris Johnson, Michael Gove and George Osborne. <laughs> and this is not necessarily reliable. <laughs> so you have to interpret what they say in some ways. So back, back to you, Justin. So I've got, I got a, another view on history to add into this. I'm not saying this is right, but I think history is a living entity. And a way to look at it is, you know, and this, this give you an analogy, the way I see it. And this happens in history, as you, I'm sure you guys all know. You get like um, a Roman temple, right? Say built in Bath or somewhere, right? The Romans leave, the Brits come along, they take the temple apart and they build their own temple out of those bricks. And they maybe add a few more bits in, a bit, you know. You can see the story. Then somebody else comes along, the Saxons. They, take, they don't like the religion. They take the stones apart, but then they use them again with new bricks, new stones from elsewhere, with a different architecture, and build their own temple. Therefore, the temple that we live in today is full of different bricks from history. That's how I see it. And that's the relevance, to my mind, for studying history because we live in it we are part of it and it's in the traces of why chairs are like they, they are the, the the way buildings are built the clothes we wear the language we speak in the 14th century they would not say good morning they would say by our lord mary how are you there was always a religious note first it was religious first culture second today it's the other way around so just another view. I don't know if you want to add into that. Yes, the word girl originally meant a child. <laughs> I mean, yeah, history is absolutely... To understand some uh, history, even very far back, is absolutely crucial to understanding anything about the way modern society operates and once you start unpacking history, a lot of things that are taken to be true, in fact, are revealed to be cultural constructs. I mean, the whole kind of notion of the body and the whole kind of notion of the male and female body that we think are very kind of, oh, well, you know, well, medical science says this about the body and that's kind of... Actually, if you look at the history of the way that the body and gender and sexuality was perceived, it's incredi incredibly complicated. In the medieval period, the idea that one could change sex that once was actually fairly common. The notion of gender... That actually people had a much more complicated notion of the body and of male and femaleness than we understand. Every, most kind of things that we take as common sense truths usually in a fairly right-wing, <laughs> closing-down discourse way. And in fact, if you go back, they're often fairly recent inventions. And that kind of understanding, that thinking about that, trying to think about the ways in which things actually... Trying to understand that, how actually ideology has hugely shaped the way every facet of our modern culture is hugely important everything all that we everything that we live on is based in historical constructions because we cannot have we cannot escape that we cannot escape ideology we cannot escape the construction the way the world is constructed around us and interpreted to us throughout our lives it's and that once you've understood that then a lot of the kind of things we perceive as realities and as un, as kind of fixed things just completely fall apart and that's a kind of really interesting, quite frightening, but also incredibly exciting 
thing to position to be in. I mean, I, I still see history as absolutely crucial to everything. I was really, and you could a lot of people who studied economics at university. I was absolutely shocked to discover that they don't study the history of economics as a discipline. And then you kind of know, see so people again, sort of people talking about the market and capitalism as if it's some kind of, well, it was invented by the Dutch in the 17th century. You know, it's kind of a lot of that stuff. You know, it, it's a kind of actually very recent kind of almost fairly deliberate invention. It's kind of an but people talk about it as if it's some kind of immutable law of God. And that once you start understanding the history of things like economics, the history of things like bi biological, again, the history of the biological sciences, then you'll start really questioning things about the way that we write, up, the way that we do sort of talk about things like the body and about sexuality, because medical science is just is an intellectual discipline and therefore is underpinned by ideology and historical constructions. And once you start getting you down into the history of things, it all becomes incredibly interesting and much more fluid. Chloe, did you want to add to that at all? Uh, that was all really interesting. Um, I was no, I was just going. I wanted to add to that also. I think sometimes you have to ask the question: What is what is history? How old does something have to be before it becomes? History is, is yesterday, is that long ago enough? Pro probably not by most people's standards. Um, the reason this is at the forefront of my mind is last week I went on a visit to a National Trust property up in Worcestershire called Croom. Um, that is the house, is, it's really unusual by National Trust standards. It's a 18th century uh, building, but it's been used for lots and lots of different things. So it was a kind of a big aristocratic home for a while. It was sold to the Hare Krishna and it was their headquarters. It's been a boys boarding school. Um, on the same land, there's also been a secret wartime airbase. But what was really interesting is um, in the house, I was taken on a tour by the house steward. And there was one door we reached, and he, he wouldn't let us see what was inside. He sort of went, are you, are, you, are you ready for this? Are you ready for what's behind this door? And we were like, oh, what's behind the door? And he opens it, and we walked into a kind of a, a modern bathroom from, I don't know, the late 90s, the early 2000s, and it was the tackiest thing you've ever seen in this massive manor house. It was an enormous room, like double height ceiling, but the wallpaper was striped in uh, black and gold, and there was uh, big his and hers sinks, and right in the middle, there was this appalling bath, just like slap, slap bang in the middle of the room, and apparently the house had at one point been sold to a property developer, who, <laughs> who had decided to turn this particular suite of rooms on the first floor into some kind of gaudy apartment for himself. I don't thank God, I think he must have sold it on pronto and not lived there for very long because he hadn't got the chance to wreck many of the other rooms. But the, the house steward, who was a really interesting guy, said to us, well, what, well, what do you think? Does Is this history? Should we keep it like this? Should we rip this out? He made the point that some of the... Uh, some of the room interpreters, some of the volunteers in the house, you know, they, they hadn't even been born when that bathroom was put in. So it's, his, it's history to them. And we actually got into a really, I was there with the other, uh, the team from Tintsfield, and we got into a really interesting debate. Some people were like, oh, it's, it's horrific, tear it out, tear it out. And I was like, no, I, I kind of like how incongruous it is. And, and it is part of that, it was part of the house's history. So... Yeah, you know, what, what is history? Who decides that? And who decides what's worth keeping and what isn't? Like, yeah, I mean, it was a crime against taste. I, <laughs> there's, there's absolutely no doubt about that. But, you know, who can say that that's not part of the house's history and, oh, it should be restored to its 18th century Robert Adams interior? You know, who, who can honestly make that decision? It, it, was, it was a really interesting day out, actually. Um, yeah, it's not a property like, like any other in the National Trust. It's, it's, it's a very challenging property, which I, I really enjoyed visiting. I mean, again, that's actually making me think of... Um, so I've been to Egypt. I've been to see the pyramids and some of the tombs in the Valley of the Kings. I've been to China. I've been to see the Forbidden City. These are all amazing experiences. But actually, if, if there was to be a nuclear war tomorrow, which somehow suddenly doesn't seem as unlikely <laughs> as it did a couple of months ago, and an archaeologist was to be picking up Las Vegas, we would be going round, people in the future would be going round Las Vegas with the same, 
and there's all this gold there and it's this amazing place and it's so big and so huge and there's so much work was put in to build this and look at these amazing golden ceilings and these amazing landscape gardens and people will be talking about it in exactly the same way as we all talk as great connoisseurs of the Archbishop's Palace in Salzburg, the Forbidden City, the tombs at Luxor. Luxor was the tackiest thing in the world. The Forbidden City is just, it's just unbelievably tacky. Ancient Greek temples were so goddamn tacky. All those beautiful white statues we see, that wonderful clean white marble. It was all painted. It was all covered in gold. And we sort of talk about these things as you know, these amazing, oh, these amazing cultural objects, these amazing, beautiful art objects. Honestly, Trump Towers would be, people would be going around Trump, guided tours of Trump Towers in several hundred years' time. Like, oh, this gold, this craftsmanship, this work, this, oh, this amazing thing. And, you know, we're all snickering at it. It's all kind of... <laughs> We reify the past as this kind of somehow it has some kind of existence in separate existence or something kind of special and amazing without actually thinking about again about just thinking about the reality of people's lives in it. I don't care how gauche your bathroom is, Chloe, it can't be as bad as Brighton Pavilion. Which which is the most the most expensive brothel I have ever been in. Uh just just briefly coming back to this question of history being different, I've just finished writing a post which I hope is going to be on Notches, the, the blog of the history of sexuality. And one of the points I've had to make there in, in, is that we often look at the past through the lens of 20th century ideas, particularly 20th century historians, of course, will have looked at the past through their own understanding of gender. But in fact, the idea that humans are divided into heterosexuals and homosexuals, and these are two entirely separate categories, was invented in the late 19th century by a German called Karl Maria Kirpenny. Before that, people didn't have that idea. It wasn't part of our cultural imagination. Yeah, so again, again this, you know, this whole notion of the body, there are two distinct sexes, there are two distinct, there are different sexual identities. It's all actually a very modern construct. A lot of it basically to denigrate women. It's kind of sort of... And suddenly that kind of opens up a whole new, once you really grasp that, kind of, it opens up a whole new exciting kind of, and this whole, you know, this whole incredibly depressing issue about bathrooms and who, who uses what bathroom at the moment and kind of, oh my God, someone kind of might actually like, a man might be in the same loo as me because that obviously never happens at home, does it? <laughs> kind of, um, <laughs> again, you know, the kind of concept of male and female bathrooms is really recent and it's actually basically invented because women didn't really go out much in the Victorian period and then there's this sudden moment where kind of like, oh shit, they want to gun places. Oh, oh, they've got to have their own special rooms, haven't they? These kind of, they can't possibly kind of be anywhere near men, these kind of these funny second-class people. And now we're getting in this huge bizarre strop about something as though it's kind of some kind of like, sort of like the Lord saith kind of actually the people who believe that kind of thing probably do believe the Lord saith but you know as if kind of like <laughs> there was the big bang and there were male and female toilets and never should there be any kind of <laughs> it's just you know kind of just maybe think about things and think about the past of things and think about the history of things a bit folks I'm sure it was somewhere on the Ten Commandments that there should be male and female toilets. <laughs> but before I get into a rant about Aristotle and his ideas about human reproduction, I'm going to turn the mic over to Pete. Here's a bugger for the bottle, apparently, Aristotle. Um, yes, so um, I was just going to uh, plug a book, uh, not my own. Um, there's, a, there's an interesting philosophical treatise on what is history, and the book's called What is History by... Um, I think the author's called E.L. Carr or E.H. Carr, something like that. Um, and that that sort of digs into the whole what is history and how do we look at history. Um, and, and the historical stuff is all very interesting, but I wanted to bring you back to the writing uh, and ask you about editing. So uh, <laughs> on, on um, Anna's book, you say that uh, repetition is quite important. Uh, and usually it's an editing thing of you know, get rid of all the repetition. You know, um, repeating things is bad. So did you have any arguments with your editor over that? And um, for, for Chloe, um, your prose seems quite polished. Um, so I, I was just wondering if you've had um, somebody look at it already. Uh, has it been edited or have you workshopped it or anything? So, actually, the simple 
short answer is no I didn't have that much issue with kind of people trying to edit out repetition um I think people knew when the book went out on submission I think people it was very clear from the first page to people this is a very particular style if you didn't want to publish a book like this you didn't want to buy it it's um I know some editors did not want to buy it. It was a book that was kind of... Some editors really did want to buy it, some didn't. But I think it was really clear and people, you know... What you'd have had to do to my book to strip out things like the repetition, you'd have been left with something so kind of slight and so insubstantial and so not... You know, there wouldn't have been any point buying it really, if you were then going to make me rewrite it to not be in the style it's written in. I mean, I do find... I don't find the kind of big structural edits thing an issue at all. I'm doing a... Just finishing up structural edits on book two at the moment, actually. I don't find the kind of structural edits a problem at all. Partly, I guess, because I've, I did a PhD. I've now been a civil servant where you do a lot of rewriting of things you have to kind of restructure things depending on political nuances so that kind of well you need to reframe this argument you need to reframe this argument you need to sort of actually need to talk about this and this and this instead or as well or actually you know I'm really used to that but I do find the kind of copy edit stage really difficult I I see it I do see it almost as an exam if someone kind of says oh I think this would sound better like that I get really kind of I'm just like no you're wrong I'm keeping it or if they were right I do feel it that's what I feel really personally people kind of saying I really do not like the way this character works can you completely restructure this character I actually don't have much of a problem with when people start saying things like this paragraph could be so much better written if it was like this that I find that really painful. If someone starts mucking around with my commas, that's a really kind of like, you bastard. Do you know how many times that comma went in and out? I, w I was like literally in the shower every morning for a week arguing with myself about that comma. And now you're right. I should, <laughs> I should not have done that with that comma. And I just feel like I have failed here. <laughs> and that is kind of... <laughs> but yeah, no, it, um, but yeah, they don't actually do that much to it because... If someone had just tried to rewrite it in kind of very different prose, it wouldn't be what it is at all. And there was a load of other books they could have bought that they wouldn't have had to do that to. Oh, sorry. Oh. <laughs> oh, I forgot it was coming to me. Yeah, I've, I've read I've read Anna's book, and I got to say it's it's very it's really different from anything I've read before in, in a really positive way. I found the quality of your prose really. Um, hypnotic in places and hearing you read it out loud like the rhythm and the cadence of it it comes through so strongly in the reading I, I really enjoyed that um, yeah in terms of in terms of my book um, no it hasn't been looked at by any editors um, I have some um, some of my lovely friends read it for me and point out when I've made typos and mistakes but that that's about as far as it's gone so far I'm I'm quite I'm maybe not the most critical self-editor and I ought to learn to be. But actually, as I was reading then, I did strip out a few bits. I hope you guys didn't notice when I skipped over. <laughs> I know I suddenly noticed there were too many sort of he saids and she saids and he whispered. And I was like, wait, Chloe, you don't need these. Get rid of them. <laughs> so, um, uh, but yeah, I, I did used to work as a copywriter for a while. I was sort of a marketing assistant slash copywriter. So I was very used to editing my own writing and in particular I'm very wordy I'm very very wordy so in terms of crunching it down <laughs> and streamlining the prose that's that's something that I'm I'm learning to do over time Sorry. I just want to add to what Pete said is that your prose really is is very polished for a first attempt uh, well, that's you know, that's impressive and and Anna I feel your pain I had a, an email back today from a, a magazine that I've got a an essay in and they said it's fine we'll we'll publish it pretty much as it is apart from a few punctuation changes so, no my commas <laughs> I gritted my teeth and wrote back and said sure that's fine <laughs> no problem <laughs> thing about having a degree in ancient world studies so having studied Greek and Latin which of course are kind of where most of our grammar rules come from even though English 
is not particularly closely related to Greek or Latin, and then having a PhD in English literature, as I can basically look at people and say, I have a degree in classics. I studied classics under professors of Greek from the University of Oxford and Cambridge. I have a PhD in English literature. Do not lecture me on grammar, for I know it better than you ever shall. <laughs> Which I do. <laughs> Yeah, my grammar is hopeless, so I'm quite happy to be edited. Anyway, we have gone on rather long with our ranting about history. It's, it's getting a little late, so I think we should move on to announcements. Does anybody have any? Pete, there's a Festival of Literature coming up. Is Before the Festival of Literature, there is... Uh, October's got all of the events in Bristol, all of them. So um, there's Poetry Can, there's Bristol Horrorcon, there's a Bristol Festival of Literature, there's... Bristol Con, um, and of course there's uh, also Bristol Festival of Ideas carrying on. Um, uh, the Bristol Festival of Ideas in October, the week before the Festival of Literature, are doing the Festival of, of the Future City, which was brilliant last year. Thoroughly recommend it. Um, so have a look at their website. Uh, it would appeal to anybody writing um, sci-fi or near-future sci-fi. Um, for the for Bristol Horicon, um, we're putting on a film at the Watershed this year on Friday the 13th. Um, so we were showing Stephen Volk's um, Ghost Watch, which is, until very recently, until the Stuart Lee thing, it was the most complained about um, TV programme on the BBC. Um, it was filmed in 1992, so we're doing a 25th anniversary edition. Uh, and there'll be a Q&A with Stephen Volk, who's the scriptwriter afterwards, um, with Kim Newman. Um, on Saturday the 14th is um, Horicon itself. Um, I think it's £8 on the door, Tom? £8 on the door. Loads of really good stuff happening. Um, there's some people in this room that will be doing stuff in there, um, including uh, Jonathan sat next to me. Um, that's, uh, yeah, so that's Saturday the 14th. Then on the 19th, the Festival of Literature kicks off with the North Bristol writers at Ornus Vale doing ghost tales. And there's a bit of a ghost tale theme. Um, ghosts and crime is the kind of the theme of the festival this year. Um, we're doing ghosts in the caves and crime in the caves, and in Redcliffe Caves. They always sell out fast. We're doing a couple of events at Ornus Vale, the North Bristol writers, as I mentioned. Um, Stories of Strong Women, which um, Cheryl was at last year. Um, there's a book fair on Saturday the 21st. There's the Flash Slam, which is um, seven writing groups in Bristol, seven Bristol writing groups even, um, competing uh, uh, w with 300 word stories. So that's always very interesting. There's a whole bunch of workshops for writers. So there's a blogging workshop, a social media workshop, a making history workshop, so about historical fiction. Um, and some others that I've completely forgotten. Um, so the festival runs from the 19th until the 29th. Uh, on the 28th is BristolCon, which is sort of nominally twinned with the festival. Um, and BristolCon, as we all know, uh, is the, the premier sci-fi and fantasy convention in, in the Southwest. And the guest of honor well, one of the guests of honor this year is Jonathan L. Howard. Um, and the festival finished on the 29th of October with a, um, a workshop on writing climate fiction. Um, and I think that's it, really. Okay, my own stuff around that. On the 4th, I think the first Wednesday in October, my radio show will be doing a lot of stuff about the forthcoming literary stuff. Uh, Amy Morse is going to come on and talk about the, the festival in general, sort of an overview of the, the different events. Virginia Bergen, who was a, a reader here a few months back, is going to be talking to me about her, her novel, Who Runs the World? So that should be a, a good bit of feminist ranting. And hopefully there'll be somebody else 
on talking about this year's Strong Women panel, which will feature me again, uh, Lucian Boyce. Uh, Virginia's going to be in on that one as well, so that should be well worth it. And Arnesvale is a lovely venue, and I think it's a great idea doing ghost stories in a graveyard. Well done, whoever thought of that. Uh, there is no uh, fringe here in October because we have Bristol Con instead. There will be, I believe, an open mic at Bristol Con, but I won't be there because I will be in Bologna at an academic conference. Uh, so, Tom, perhaps you can tell us about uh, that. Yes, so those who've been to uh, Bristol Con before uh, will be in uh, one of the rooms uh, in the Doubletree uh, Hotel uh, setup. Now, uh, we've actually got uh, both alumni of Open Mics. I think, uh, Anna, you actually did the Bristol Con uh, Friday night one year. Yeah, so we. Yeah, yeah. So we, we've had Anna, we've had Chloe uh, read in April this year. Uh, we, I will be running um, sort of like for half an hour before a little sort of workshop. So anyone who's not read before, who's nervous about reading, will talk through just you know uh, sort of relaxing exercises, how to uh, get the best out of your story, and uh, really just sort of like help. Uh, it's a really welcoming environment. You know, it can sometimes look a bit intimidating. Uh, sort of uh, being up here but uh, it's always a great fun and it's just uh, five minute stories or five minute of a story and uh, yeah so that's on the Friday night uh, sort of same sort of time so sort of doors from 7 7.30 start but we'll advertise the uh, sort of like workshoppy bit um, before then that'll probably be about 6 6.30 uh, but we'll put all that on uh, the Facebook um, and uh, the main uh, website once we've got those uh, details ironed out. So, yes. Uh, fabulous, yes. So that will all be good. Hope you all have a wonderful time. Jen Williams is the other uh, author guest of honour. Uh, so along with Jonathan, that should be well worth going along and listening to. And I've just been reminded hearing um, Tom talk about reading is that um, when Chloe was saying that she started editing when she was reading her, her story out, there is no better way, I think, of uh, finding problems with your fiction than actually reading it out. Um, so that's, that's worth a try. Okay, has anybody else got any announcements before we close? Tom? Just one more. As we have, uh, you may have noticed at the back, we've got uh, Books on the Hill uh, selling Anna's book. Uh, they do accept cards. So, uh, you know, if you haven't got cash, don't worry about it. Um, and uh, they have a lovely selection of loose leaf teas, um, which uh, I, I keep forgetting to promote, but they are amazing. So, again, if uh, you fancy a purchase, then uh, please see they're going to be here for a little while after we finish. Yeah, the tea's fabulous. I always have some. Okay, so can we have a, a warm uh, round of applause, please, for our two readers? <laughs> the Bristol Con Fringe is a monthly podcast produced by the Bristol Con Foundation. The music at the beginning of this podcast is The Future by Chevy174. We'd like to thank the famous Royal Navy volunteer for providing us with a venue and we'd like to thank you for listening. If you would like to keep up to date with our events, please like our Bristol Con Fringe page on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at BrizConFringe.